This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wood, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. All right, guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast. We've got kind of a training issue in the MTG finance world today is what we're going to be covering. Mm -hmm. uh, Rudy posted a video about the reserve list is crashing, the sky is falling, oh no, we're all dying. Uh, and there were a couple videos about that as well, which prompted me to tweet out from our Twitter, which you should follow, uh, about what my thoughts are, basically, for what that means for the MTG finance world. Uh, so let's cover the basics, then. Let's get it taken away. Yep. Uh, so leading economic indicators for the past couple of months have pointed to the fact that we are going to be moving into our expected decade-ly recession uh, within the U.S., either in 2019 or early 2020. And we're also moving into the winter doldrums, coming out of yep. a heavy wall of fatigue season. So what we're seeing is a lot of high-end reserveless cards just stagnating in price and eventually clogging inventory, lowering buy prices on these cards. Retail sales the same, buy price goes down because inventory is not moving. At the same time, what you're seeing, though, is that highly liquid cards continue to move both the retail and buy list side. So the high-profile portion of the game that people like Rudy like to claim is their market indicator, their bread and butter, might be stagnating here, but it's not permanent stagnation, and it's not going to be any kind of regressive uh, pricing. We're not going to see the price of a Lotus drop. We're not going to see dual lens drop. We will see them stagnate, and then eventually when we come out the other side in 2020, maybe around uh, April, in you know, tax season, quote-unquote, We'll see those prices begin to pick up, and you'll watch the reserve list generally continue on with its between like five and seven percent year-over-year growth. Yeah, uh, it's, and I, I do want to say we'll still see the year-end bump that you typically see in that stuff, courtesy of Vegas and Eternal Weekend. Mm -hmm. It's just I don't think it's going to be as big, uh, and oh, yeah. I don't think that it really makes sense for it to be as big. Like, for example, last week, Card Kingdom's buy list on Flooded Strand was $12. And this week, it's fifteen fifty. Well, you know, they tanked their buy list for reserve list stuff in that time. You know, Eureka dropped 100 bucks. Yeah. Uh, Mox Diamond only dropped 30 but that's got, you know, absurd legacy playability. Um, it's that type of stuff that you're going to see drop but it makes more sense for them because it becomes much more about cash flow at this point. Mm -hmm. So they're much more concerned with, you know, let's tank our buy price on high-end stuff because we'll still get it. Yes. Vendors will still acquire it and they don't have to pay as much because mm -hmm. it's the winter sell-off season. So, you know, someone's going to propose on Christmas Day in front of their family and they're going to sell their twister to buy a ring. How romantic. But... That's going to happen regardless of what the buy price is. The thing is, when you start to get these, as you phrased it, the winter doldrums and people are just liquidating mass amounts of their collection for holiday spending or to get a house or a ring or whatever, uh, they'll have a bunch of flooded strands. And that stuff remains incredibly liquid mm -hmm. throughout an economic downturn because people are still playing. Yes. The, the casual players, the players that go to F&M, that play in the weeklies, that don't grind out 10 hours a week on 
you know, 20 hours a week on Moto that aren't grinding for top 100 Mythic on Arena, they're still going to go out and they're still going to need those cards. Mm -hmm. So you want to acquire as many of them as possible because that churn keeps going. Yes. And the more you keep that going during an economic downturn, the more opportunity you have when it's over and we're back in a boom situation. Yep. To just come back and it's still business as usual. And this is a a really good example that we talk about every now and again, which is that it... Uh, not as a collector, but as somebody who's just trying to grind your way through the game, keeping inventory for too long is actually uh, impactful in a negative direction, where it's just sitting there taking up inventory space, and uh, it's money you could have churned several times over. And there's no yep. business that is in the business of doing exactly that, buying a product and holding it just because. They want to churn that stock because that money will churn several times, and it will grow multiple in multiples each time you churn it. Yeah. So holding off on those large products, which, as you said, people will still sell no matter what, in favor of buying small, a, a higher quantity of smaller churning products is an overall better business model when you're moving into the time of year where people are going to be spending less on a hobby than they will be on the rest of their lives yep. in that time period. And it's not to say that collectors stop collecting those people will still do their thing it's those guys that just kind of squirrel away money all year long by you know doing their own little bits of buying and selling and eventually trying to move up into duels or power that are going those people are going to kind of disappear at that point in time but as you stated the people who just go and play fnms are still going to be buying these cards because they're still affordable those these cards being flooded strands or snapcaster mages cards for standard because this format can still be played in paper, it's still enjoyable, and it's still fairly cheap to get into. Same thing with EDH yep. staples. People are never going to stop buying those things as long as they remain you know, kind of cheap and affordable. Because they are just that cheap, affordable, and it's just kind of like a long-lasting fun you can have. It's just not there and gone. How many times are you going to be able to use a piece of power that is banned in EDH? Like that just goes and sit somewhere else. That's the kind of expenditure yeah. you're not going to be seeing by people who have a little bit of a spare income in this time period. The, and this is just the beginnings of what we're seeing for uh, the recession. The longer it goes, obviously, this is going to be more impactful, but the collectors keep collecting because their cash flow just doesn't stop. And yeah. I mean, they, you know, you'll still see the people like, you know, Nocenti or stuff like that, that, are known quantities at the upper echelons of what's going on mm -hmm. that they'll still collect, but they don't do enough in mass to move the market typically because it benefits them to do it slowly and over time. Yes. To have it move slowly rather than make one big move and all of a sudden, well, is this real? Is it not? Because they can't sell them because mm -hmm. they crash the market. Yeah. It's it's all faith-based perceived values. So that stuff doesn't hit that same spike. Whereas, you know, it was up on the Reddit today, Assassin's Trophy is suddenly nearly $20 mm -hmm. on TCG. Well, it's still available on a couple of bigger vendors' websites for less than 15 mm -hmm. Uh So keep an eye out for that. Yeah. But it, oh, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. Oh, all right. uh, this is also a point in time where you can start to make your own moves. This is... Uh, the, the time of year, the winter sell-off, where players in my area know they can come to me with higher-end stuff, and this is where I buy a lot of what I invest in. I don't do a lot of standard and modern, I'll leave that for other vendors in the area, but my players who are either college students who just kind of come and go throughout the year, or people who are just exiting the format done and want their investment back, or people who bought in 
to, as I just said, invest, know they can out to me at buy list or better. So, you know, at this time of year where, you know, prices are going to tank and they need that money. Yeah. So this is definitely an opportunity if you have the extra money to start making your moves on higher end cards, be it reserve list or not, that will make a return uh, either Q2 2020 or maybe a little later in that year if we do head in if the u.s does head into an economic recession yeah uh which you know what so what can you the layman do with this well you know like we said this is your opportunity to start making some moves if there's stuff that Mm -hmm. you think is a good investment if you see someone in your local buy sell trade group throwing up you know plague engineers or fetch lands or something it's a decent time to get in on those because you're not going to have a problem trading them out over the next few months or year, however long it lasts. Oh, yeah. Whereas you may have some issues moving some more illiquid stuff. I mean, probably going to have a little bit of problem moving time twisters or bazaars because it's just not there yeah. the way that it is for fetch lands. Yeah, exactly. And I, I like the... Uh, the analogy you gave uh, earlier before the stream crashed and, and on Twitter, where you can take, you know, fifteen hundred and put that towards duels or power, something that's a liquid right now. If you're a backpack grinder or a, or a small store, or you can put that towards something like chain veils. Yeah. And and turn those chain veils either to buy list later on in a couple months when they go up, or picking them up from people who are selling out now on Facebook Marketplace. Or uh, like Kaijiji, Craigslist, stuff like that. Yeah. To other local players or to, or to buy less for profit. And this is another one of those times where there are a lot of avenues you can take. You can be smart with your money and definitely come out ahead. You know, the, the winter time is great for both uh, buyers and sellers. The, the fall to winter, sorry, the summer to fall transition is generally bad uh, as a seller because yep. you're competing with everybody else who's selling out of old standard and modern rotations, like quote-unquote rotations, where we just end the modern season and move into standard, right? But now is yeah. not a bad time as somebody who's looking to buy. There's still plenty of sellers out there, but all the prices are just deflated as a whole. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, every day in sick deals, high-end, mm-hmm. whatever Raz groups you're in, whatever, someone's posting, hey, uh, you know, I need holiday money, here's yep. some stuff. And, you know, there's times where if you scout it out, you can find it at buy list. Yes. And not Latin like Card Kingdom buy list, which is, you know, basically TCG low. But what a GP vendor would pay, which is like 60 to 70 percent of low, mm-hmm. because sometimes they just need the cash right away. And it's the time of year where that's going to happen combined with, you know, perceived economic downturn. And now everybody knows the sky is falling. Thanks. Uh <laughs> I mean, and, it's, it's useful information yeah. just pre- presented in a terrible format. Sometimes. Most times. But, yeah, and I mean, even even talking to vendors, you know, they've they've said the same thing. Like, this is where GP vendors, you know, TOA, Moose, stuff like that, they're going to start shifting towards the more liquid stuff. Yep. Especially, like, with all the uncertainty going on right now with events, vendors are significantly more hesitant that base their business model on the GP circuit to figure out what to go after. Oh, absolutely. Uh, For those of you that haven't been following, basically, so these command fests got announced, and 
they're the weekend of eternal weekend which is a problem in and of itself because that's always been like a sacrosanct time of year uh the one in dc or the one in dc is run by star city games Mm -hmm. the one in chicago is run by pastimes the one in seattle is run by channel fireball and the perception among most of the vendor industry is channels losing the contract for next year and they're giving a trial run for other tos to run gps well we don't have a gp schedule yet we don't know what it's going to look like and some people and i think this is a little more extreme uh aren't sure that gps may be a thing next year and the vendors and that's a very you know fatalist in my opinion just absurd conclusion to come to yeah but they're definitely going to be drastically different because right now as a vendor the more gps you vend the higher you are in the list to pick where your booth is mm-hmm. which may not seem like a lot to some people but just basic marketing that can have a huge impact on your weekend oh absolutely so if we go to a regional system all of a sudden well if you're in the midwest you know it's a casual haven so you can just focus on those if you're a business based out of the midwest mm-hmm. and just do those gps and it doesn't matter yeah you'll have all the cards you need but if you're one of the vendors like you know 95 or mtg mint that goes to everything there's a little bit of uncertainty there as far as where you want to put your money right now mm-hmm. because you don't know what you're going to be doing next year no it, it's definitely an interesting prop uh, I, I think it more like a thought experiment moving forward because if you don't know what's coming up as a player who's looking to sell, that means you're going to have to start conducting all your business online. And not everybody has the best of times online. It's also hard to to haggle online, to get that deal online. And from the vendor perspective, it also makes it hard to acquire cards outside of your buy list if you're no longer going out to Grand Prix. Yeah. Because those were just places where you could vacuum up infinite if your prices were good. You didn't have to worry about local events. You didn't have to worry about having a, uh, an actual store. You could be a GP vendor without a physical storefront. You just needed yeah. a warehouse for processing. And it kind of cre- it, it changes the secondary market paradigm and kind of challenges things as we know it. But it also cuts down on the physical play experience, which is floating, right? Or circling the drain is better right now as we know it and yeah i don't know how much that affects things right now in regards to economic forecasting for magic and you know where you could look to shift your money to invest but in the end it all still points to the same thing which is just edh is the way to go yeah i long term you'll never have a problem with it and i think that you know Again, this this doesn't like address the core topic of the episode, which is you know the potential for a recession and what it means for magic. Mm-hmm. It's just something that compounds it on the vendor level, where they don't necessarily know now. Like, well, they, buy prices are even more in flux. Yep. Sell prices for them are even more in flux because there's an added element of uncertainty. Oh, absolutely. So, it's yeah. it's interesting to see because you know companies like Card Kingdom they don't rely on the GP model at all. No, their no. buy list is unaffected by that. So Correct. their buy list is static. But if most of your outs, like me, happen to be other vendors because you're at so many GPs, this is actually a pretty like 
impactful thing to keep in mind. Yeah, and it kind of cuts out that binder grinder angle that people uh, take on going to GPs. You know, you can still floor trade at a GP. That's still possible. You just shouldn't be using prices for anything or like gouging whatever it is. What, yeah. Whatever the, the definition is, the Channel Fireball has given out. Like that's that's a no no. But grinding is still fine, and that does kind of put a, a spanner in the works for a number of people who are just trying to still do it physically. Yeah, you, you can still grind on Facebook. That's still an option. You're in and out. You know, you can still work there, but it just slows everything down. Like, the with. An, em- an economic recession looming, and basically the expected drop in the spend, the, ex- the general spending habits of the overall consumer in a luxury goods market, which would represent high-end magic cards, it does raise the question of where do you expect people to be putting their money during this time period that aren't collectors? And we talked a little about standard and modern, and the the picks that we made for the week are kind of linked to this topic because there are still cards that we're seeing move move up both yeah. on the buy list and the uh, resale side of things. So you you can still kind of watch market trends and see like, all right, these still might be luxury items, but they haven't hit a threshold yet where they've just become something that's completely, you know, unobtainable. You yeah. still have Scrubland and Plat- yeah, Scrubland, Plateau, and Taiga floating at the low end for duels. There's a number of fast mana artifacts for EDH that have a fairly low floor right now that people can still buy into. There are still legacy strategies revolving around reserveless cards like Stifle Knot, where Knot just picked up a little bit because of the mirror that was released. Some are finally playing it again. But this is another strategy you can buy into. That deck was actually mono blue. There are no dual lands in that deck. At this point... Phyrexian Dreadnought is the most expensive card, and if I price it out real quick, I'm going to go ahead and guess that that deck's like $300, $400, which is, or can be, the price of a standard deck at some point in time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you can still keep an eye on new sets, obviously, because standard, the the weekly grind stuff, like I said, that's still viable. Yeah. That's still going to happen. That market still exists. So going in on, like, you know whatever hot tech is in standard i don't know i don't play that format it's not great and admittedly a hole in my financial knowledge yeah but well nobody uh, sure niv mizzet i'm sure there's some jank build with him or teferi or something you can still go in on those Mm -hmm. and the opportunity is there but that stuff is you know largely i don't want to say economy proof but it's certainly resistant to large economic factors like that yeah what you might see is a drop in uh, a hard drop in the i don't know what they're calling them the full art cards extended arts not masterpiece masterpieces yeah I don't, yeah not mythic edition editions. mythic edition whatever yeah. it is yeah yet another way to print a rare and standard yeah absolutely that that's that's actually a decent definition of a luxury good one compared to the rest of the marketplace. You could buy the new Fetchland for like, why did I price it out to? 12 bucks or something like that last week. Or you could buy the full art version of it for like 20 times as much. It's ridiculously. Why? It's dumb. Stop. You got to lend a price to these, to the collector's edition boxes, I guess. But 
The math yeah. on it says the, the EV on it's terrible. The Stifle Knot deck, by the way, is $1,000. The All of the money is tied up in the four Phyrexian Dreadnoughts that are 60 apiece and the four Force of Will that are $100 a piece. Yeah. If you cut the sure. Force of Wills out and replace them with something else, it's already running days, so you got to find another free counter spell. Force of Negation. Yeah, that drops the deck to $600, and that is the perfectly reasonable amount for a Legacy deck. You know, that's less than two Underground yeah. Seas or yep. two Trops right now. Like almost one underground scene yeah so and, and dreadnought is a card that went from about 35 dollars to 60 in a yeah. weekend because of this thing and we won uh, a moto event or top eight at a moto event so of course everyone's on it now yes it just represents that opportunity cost where you have a high profile reserve list artifact yeah that does, is... just kind of floats along for casual demand thanks to edh and then something happens, it pops, and it's still fairly obtainable. Yeah. You know, it, it's not like if something with, if a zoo deck became popular in Legacy, became the number one deck to play, or if we went back to like a Red Greens land, uh, lands build that circled around uh, Taiga required, uh, required four of them, that card would almost 1.5x overnight because yeah. it's just on the low end of the scale. It, Scrubland and plateau like i said are just the tag alongs right now yeah <clears throat> so but i i think it's you know i i thought again it was obviously worth covering in greater detail uh because i think it is you know there's a lot of misinformation about that stuff out there and we decided yeah. you know again when we set out to do this we kind of wanted to be a layman's exercise in mtg finance and that's why we're here man yeah, I, yeah and absolutely and it's it's good to know that when this is happening, there's still places where you can put your money to be relatively safe. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not just everything is going to become stagnant and some things might come down. There will be no crash in in reserveless cards ever until they literally reprint them. They're all, at this point, for the majority, collector's items. Yeah. You know, that's that. Some of them are a little less collectible than others. Like, Dreadnought is a good example because it's from Mirage and there's a lot of stuff around that era that people just don't care about. You know, some of that stuff is just reserveless because of the rules they put they put forth when creating it. Yeah. You know, so you gotta you gotta stay away from some of the clunkers that you can check out on the actual reserve list list. But there's definitely safe havens. Yeah. Which money. you know, pay attention to the vendors. Yep, absolutely. What, what they're going after those those are your safe havens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so if if you got bots, whatever you got to track that stuff, use that. Yeah, uh, this weekend it was actually kind of convenient with the lack of actual coverage at the GP because of the the Watsi contract where there's a non compete against MPL coverage. Everybody that I track had photos of the same photos of all the buy lists on yeah. a day-by-day -day basis so it was pretty easy to see what was going on and who was kind of fighting against each other to pick up uh things like black lotus is now being floated at twelve thousand, up from 10 mtg yep. mint had been floating it at a 10 for a very long time i think uh close to a year and is it i don't think it was toa somebody else uh that is another perennial gp vendor had it for 12 uh, 95 has had it for 12, uh, whatever the last GP I went to was, Indy? 
Yeah, at Indy they had it floated for twelve on their list. Yeah, if their list uh, was in descending price order, then uh, up top was UC still. They didn't have a Lotus on there. Oh yeah. So uh, maybe it wasn't them. Well, but at Indy it might have been, but not at Atlanta. Yeah. So. Uh, but yeah, it's it's the type of thing that you know the information's out there. Just gotta gotta pay attention to yeah. it. And like I said, it, it just happened to be convenient. There's nowhere that I could look where I wouldn't find this information. It, so yeah. it was it was very obvious. There are some interesting buy lists out there that are mainly focused on standard and modern. That's actually a really good sign for people heading into the winter and the recession because, like we talked about, these vendors are saying like we are still interested in standard cards. We are still interested in modern cards because these are moving. Not yep. every vendor had Lotus, had Mox Diamond, had Dual Lands on their list. Those are vendors that generally have a captive audience and are willing to bring those in because they have a market. Some of them don't yep. even have a, a large online presence to resell through. They actually just put them in cases at their stores. Yeah. Or their store, what have you. And it just moves there. But that's because they have a local player base that is looking for those cards. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, it, you'll see at this point and this is something I always find interesting. When stuff like this happens, you'll see the two vendors that you may not, you know, one or two vendors that you may not think are, like, necessarily big players, mm -hmm. but they'll all of a sudden, like, BDE some power buy price. Yep. Because you, you don't know it, but, like, you know, Shohei, for example, uh, at MTG Deals, every now and then, when he's at the booth, I mean, their buy prices are just absurd because he's getting them and taking them back to China. So when it's super cheap here, it's way more expensive there because those prices aren't affected by our recession as much. Yeah. A little bit, yes, especially China. But yeah, yeah. it's it's interesting to see. That that's actually a good point to make though is that heading into the recession depending on how long it lasts into 2020, the number of magic fests we have, you might start seeing buy prices actually recover at the GP level because you'll have more people coming in from Europe and from uh Asia in particular, buying yeah. at our prices because they can turn them around and sell them at what they used to be. And there's yeah. a, a large profit margin to be gained there. So you see a lot more players in that space. You know, a lot more people come out. And it, because high-end cards like that are a global trend. You can yeah. follow them across the globe. Like, why was Ren and Six, Six being floated at uh, 80 for the longest time? Because that was the market in Asia. So coming yep. over here and buying them when the market dictated like 50 and 60, they were able to gather up everything they possibly could in the room. And vendors didn't want to pay those prices because they had a problem outing those cards at 100, which is basically what you have to do when somebody's buying at 80. Yeah. You can't just price lower because then you might as well just walk the card over there. Yeah. Know? But so. it'll, it'll be interesting to see how it shapes out. Yep. Uh, and I, I'm going to move on to picks so we can finally link it all together. Yep, let's do it. Yep. Uh, so, uh, heading into the GP weekend coming out of Star City, I was looking at Legacy List and I wanted to pick up something that I thought would pop because of what happened in the Star City event, and not because we saw a brand new trend in the sense that like Run and Six is now uh, a definitive player in Team or Delver in some numbers, or that lands or depth they depth based decks are being played in a much higher percentage. Thus, the rise in Mox Diamond. What I went on was the Mystic Forge deck that. Uh, Irelax top 60 Ford with. So that was played on Moto, and it's a lot easier to play there, much like KCI is, because the actions are kind of put forth uh, in front of you, and all your triggers are there to kind of see. It, it, it's hard to, to miss a lot of what's going on. Yeah. The deck needs to uh, put legs under itself and go. 
So when I was looking through the list, I was like, all right, it's either Thran Dynamo or Grim Monolith. Some crossover card into EDH. And I was checking out Thran Dynamo, and the Commander reprint on that card is kind of depressed it to the point where they're about $7 each down from, like, what is it, almost 20 before the reprints. Yeah. And I was like, it's got to be Grim Monolith. That's got to be the card. Because that, that is an EDH card for people who just want to be uh, super consistent. It is yeah. a necessity in any uh, artifact-based EDH list. It is CDH playable. It has, generally speaking, White. been a cornerstone uh, in vintage in mono brown decks of any flavor from stacks to mud to uh, turbo. Yeah, It shows up in Legacy in uh, control decks, like mud control in years uh, past. And I just checked out the price, and it looked a little stagnant for a card that's seen that's very high-profile reserve list. It's also part of middle school. It's not a core player in that format of uh, a middle school and pre-modern yet, but it has applications there. Yeah. So I went with Grim Monolith as my pick. And then on Friday, after I released it, and I looked at the price, and on Friday it was going for about 150 I believe. Mm-hmm. $153.96 was the market. At GP uh, Atlanta, it was on hot lists. So right now, Grim Monolith is on hot list for, I believe, 110 cash prior to a trade bonus. Card Kingdom is buying them for 90 cash, 117 credit. So this is a card with a $30 delta, which is about 20%. Pretty good. Correct. Which should kind of tell you that this is a card that is on its way up again. Yeah. You know, if this Mystic Forge deck takes off, or if people start buying in because it's been stagnant for a while and EDH is a card that hits $200 pretty quickly. My initial thought behind Mox Diamond was it still has room to grow, but it is when it grows, it grows quick, and so it it is out of range for a lot of people very quickly. And there's also going to be a point in time where there are going to be too many barriers of entry into a depths or a land-based deck behind Tabernacle. That that Diamond is probably going to come to a halt a lot faster than Grim Monolith is. Yep. This is definitely a card that is easily accessible and is cheaper than most dual lands. So for EDH players, this is kind of like... It's not the equivalent of a dual land for a mono-brown player, but it is definitely a combo engine for EDH. It is... A card yeah. that is never not going to see play. It's a card that is just going to keep going up. And I think it will go up faster than we think it will through the rest of 2019 into 2020. Like I said, especially as people keep playing this Mystic Forge deck in Legacy. And I think it's a very safe place to be if you want to own a playset. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's easily within the next year, I would think it hits Mox Diamond price. It's It's got all the playability... Mm-hmm plus more liquidity because of EDH. Mox Mox Diamond is something you find almost exclusively in CEDH when you're Mm -hmm. trying to optimize your turn two Adnaws or something like that, whereas Grim Monolith, everyone plays that. Yes. Yeah. I I think Mox Diamond also has a little bit more of a pedigree behind it than Grim Monolith in older formats. Like, Mox Diamond was great, and Grim Monolith were both great when they were in standard, but when we shifted to extended... Grim Monolith wasn't really played that much, 
it was no. Mox Diamond that actually powered out a lot of the old green-black decks or helped uh, yeah. a Lurian combo or a lot of other odds and ends decks just get going. It wasn't Monolith. So it's like every couple of years, people remember like, oh, that card actually wins events. Yeah. And so they just, you know, disappear. And Lance <laughs> isn't going anywhere in Legacy at this point in time. No. I don't know how many cards they have to print before people realize it's not going away. Blood Moon's not stopping it. Alpine Moon's not stopping it. Damping Sphere's not stopping it. Like Infinite Wastelands to... isn't stopping it. It no. just doesn't matter. Because it'll infinitely if... wasteland you back. Like They don't care. Yeah. No, no. Uh, but when I was thinking about cards uh, to go on, this is going to bait you into yours. Uh, I, I When I heard about the Mystic Forge deck and I was thinking about what I wanted to pick for the next week, I was like, this card has got to be in there. There's no way you play this deck without your pick in it. And then when I saw the list, I was like, this is insane. Yeah. Not having uh, this pick in it is... I, I, th I thought that was insane until I read through the rest of the deck. I was like, all right, I guess you got to go off on four. You got to go off on four. You can't, yeah. you can't be floating equipment through your deck. So my pick then uh, is Metalworker. So this is a card which I'd been kind of eyeing traffic on it so we had our highest price of all time on may 16th 2018 and it's been on a steady downward trend since yep uh our current low is sitting at 39 average of 50 market of 47 so metal worker also there's a few people i know that play mud and legacy that are super stoked now because of the new creature and throne the yeah. uh trample Super. protection from multicolored guy and they're going back up to four metal workers to try to power this guy through we get the name uh, of it because this guy like i've watched people play it in standard testing and it is the truth stone coil serpent yes that one it's a x art yeah cmc x and it enters the battlefield with x plus one plus one counters on it and in Mud, this gives it away the deck a way to deal with Knight of the Reliquary, which was actually a problem for it. Mm -hmm. uh, additionally, the only removal that really hits it is Swords, which the deck had a problem. Like, Mud already had issues with Decay and Trophy. This solves those as well. Yes. So this fixes a lot of problems that the deck already has. In addition, having Reach is mm. huge oh yeah because it's not very difficult to get to you know 30 mana in that deck with an active metal worker and some other staff, good stuff yeah. out there to block a depths token do you uh staff combo in mud i can't remember the list anymore I'm... i know some people do okay um a lot of people don't anymore uh but even just being able to generate off of like you know metal worker and your pick grim monolith uh, enough mana to make this into close to a 2020 yeah. is perfectly reasonable. Uh, because, you know, the list that we're already trying to just make insanely big walking ballistas, ballistas and yeah. don't to death yep. can and, use this card. And before Ballista, it was like Spine of Isha and um, Blightsteel. Yeah. So uh, the, the Lightning Greaves pulled like triple duty in that deck, protecting your metal worker, giving it haste, allowing you to do stupid things with Staff of Domination, and then when you were ready, just plop your Blightsteel into play, give it haste, and one-shot somebody. Yeah. Uh, additionally, Metal Worker is a card that has a perception of being fairly non-liquid, so a lot of vendors aren't super high on it. Uh, take that for what you were. I have not had a problem trading it out or you know selling it, but again, in my area, EDH is huge. Every mud EDH player wants this card. 
Yeah. Uh, it is of those like super floated foil reserveless cards from Destiny, Replenish, Rector, Monolith, Metalworker, like all those early era foils that are worth too much money. Next to Monolith, Metalworker is the second most liquid. So I just think this card is primed within the next year to follow a similar trajectory yeah. to what Grim Monolith is. But I think. You know, it won't be Mox Diamond level, but I could very easily seeing it reach what, you know, Monolith currently is. Yeah. And setting it around 100 by the end of the year. No, I, I like Metal Worker, and it's definitely uh, a little card that I need to pick up another one for uh, my keep. But I'm glad I bought in when it was super low years and years and years ago, because this price right now is based almost entirely on EDH demand. There, yep. It's not played in Vintage anymore. And aside from Mud, it's never really been a legacy card. Like you, There are shenanigans you can do with a Goblin Welder, of course. And that's kind sure. of where you... You didn't really see it in Slaver decks to power out Slaver because you had Talarian Academy to do it instead. But yeah. there's goofy things you can do like that. With Manifold Key, it makes it a little more ridiculous. And it's definitely an engine card. Or not yeah. an engine card. It, it supports the engine. Staff yeah. is your engine. Or... Um, Bosch or Junk Diver, something like that that allows you to just churn through, and this guy gives you the mana to actually get going. You don't need Paradox Engine necessarily, you just need a way to untap him, and yeah. that's it. And it, all in all, I think if you wanted to get in and see more returns for less investment, I think Metal Worker is the way to go. I think Grim Monolith just has a higher floor and I a higher like ceiling. Yeah, and uh, just a, a larger amount of playability in the long run. So to yeah. me, because of where I am, my player base, I would be able to move Grim Monolith better than I am to move a uh, a Metal Worker. Because Fair. Monolith is just a colorless rock. Yeah. You know, it, it's not like... You don't have to dedicate to the artifact theme. No. You know, like I got a guy up here that bought a Eureka a couple years ago because he's that kind of player. He's not buying a Metal Worker, but he bought a Grim Monolith for that deck along with a Survival. Like, of course, yeah. You know, to to each their own, and this is you know you got to recognize what you can do with your player base. So, uh, I I like Metal Worker, and like I said, it's a card I know I need to move on faster for my cube to replace the one that's in there. But it's it's a nice pick and something you need to keep your eye on because it floats by without a lot of press. Yep. And all of a sudden, the day you realize you need it, you should have bought it a couple months ago because it's just gone through the roof, and you yep, don't know why. That's the day you realize. Yep. It. Yeah. I think this is both these cards are really good examples of that. Yeah. If you're not the kind of person that's super spiky in EDH, these cards are just gonna kind of float by, and then all of a sudden you're like, "Well, where'd they go?" And well, you have it. Guess I need them now. Absolutely. Yeah. And because <clears throat> the Urza sets still have a little bit of mystique about them for uh, the early foiling, be how powerful they are, etc. This is actually a little more of a collector set than Mirage's. Yeah. Like, a lot of these cards on the reserve list are going to hold value because of the collectability of them, because they what they did to the game, what they mean to the game, and how the game, how the, an actual played game has to be warped around them. Yeah. You don't have to worry about Phyrexian Dreadnought or LED. Those things just kind of come and go. You know, Alluring is a little more impactful than, than the other two. Yeah, but the rest of Tempest is not the same thing as the rest of Destiny, or the rest yep. of Saga when it comes to reserveless cards. So, you know, something to think about. For sure. But uh, with that, guys, I think that's it for the week, right? That is. That's all we got. Um, we are on. Do we say Friday, the twenty seventh? 
for the for the pick? Yeah. For uh, the drawing. We can go the twenty seventh. That'll be fine. We can give people a couple couple more days to to jump in. I'll pick okay. it while I'm uh, vending at my pre-release. I can do that. Hey, there we go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we'll have the drawing for the C nineteen set for our patrons. They will get the entire box shipped to them. Uh, feel free to sign up on our Patreon, where you can find us at, at MTG Cabalcast. Yep. Well, you can find us uh, there on Twitter as well at MTG Cabalcast. On Twitter, I am at Halt I am Reptar. You are. I am at Thirsty Sizzler. And we will see you next week. See ya.